As Brian said, for those that don't know, my name is Jeff Pitzer. I'm the director of worship here, and uh, Brian and some of the other leadership of the church were at a conference this week, so he asked me to fill in so he didn't have to come in and <clears throat> focus on preparing a sermon while he was going to be traveling and, and uh, going to this conference. So I thought I'd pull out all the stops and get a fiddle player and all, so you guys are really happy. So if the sermon's not that great, at least you walk away with something, right? Um, most of you know, obviously, I'm a music guy. It would be kind of weird if you had someone leading worship that wasn't into music. But some of you don't know that one of my all-time favorite music artists is a man named Rich Mullins, the late, great Rich Mullins. Not only was he a great songwriter, great musician, he was also a pretty amazing person, one of the more authentic, real Christian believers I've ever known, um, but he was a great theologian. And so if you don't get anything else from this sermon today, I would say you will get something good if you remember the name Rich Mullins, if you maybe just do a Google search for quotes by Rich Mullins or go to YouTube, uh, watch some of his clips, because not only his music was great, but the things he said in between the songs were pretty amazing. So I want to read to you one of my favorite quotes of his. It's about a professor. See, later in life, he actually went back to seminary to take some seminary classes. And so he talked about that experience. He said, I had a professor one time. He said, class, you will forget almost everything I will teach you in here. So please remember this, that God spoke to Balaam through his ass, and he has been speaking through asses ever since. So if God should choose to speak through you, you need not think too highly of yourself. And if on meeting someone, right away you recognize what they are, listen to them anyway. So whatever you think of me, I encourage you to listen to me anyway. And for those that might be a little shocked at my language with that quote this morning, that is based on a story from Numbers 22 about Balaam and his donkey. And I thought it was safe to share this morning because many of us have been reading through the Bible and you actually read that story earlier in the year. So as you can see from the slide, the sermon uh, today is on gratitude. It's on giving thanks. And that is obviously um, appropriate since we have Thanksgiving coming up. And I think of all the American-made holidays, I think Thanksgiving has got to be at the top. It's a, just a really great holiday. It's a great American tradition. It's a time to spend with family and friends, to take stock of your blessings and be thankful. But as Brian said earlier, some of you may not feel too much like you have a lot to be thankful for. For some of you, it has been a hard couple of years. Maybe, as Brian said, gathering with family feels more like a curse than a blessing. Some of you, I know, have actually lost loved ones, and you can't be with them over the holidays. Some may have had financial difficulties due to COVID. Some have had health issues. I know that we, as a nation, as a community, as individuals, we have felt isolated in the last few years. We felt divided, we felt angry, maybe anxious or fearful. Some may even have felt depressed. 
I know that many of us are aware that depression is kind of at an all-time high. It's the people are really dealing with depression, anxiety. Uh, many polls say that most Americans think the country is headed in the wrong direction. So let me ask you a question. Do you feel thankful right now? Now, I don't mean to be, you know, negative Nelly here. I'm sure that some of you do. Some of you, maybe not. But is your gratitude based on having a good day versus a bad day? Does your gratitude ebb and flow? The first scripture I'd like to bring up is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. And the writer says this, Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pretty strong words. A lot of people at one point in their life have probably asked that question, what is God's will for my life? Well, there's part of the answer right there. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, how is that possible? It kind of makes me think of the movie The Life of Brian, and for those that have seen that Monty Python movie, it's about this man named Brian who keeps getting mistaken as Jesus, and by the end of the movie, they actually crucify him thinking it's Jesus, and here he is on the cross with some other people being crucified, and all of a sudden, some people break out in a song singing, always think on the bright side of life, I mean, is that what Paul is wanting us to do here, to kind of have this Pollyanna view of life? Ignore the bad, deny the hurt, just kind of push away the pain. Can you really be thankful in all circumstances, in the good and the bad? Well, we're going to look at a story in Luke about one man's gratitude. And we're going to kind of unpack that and see how we, as followers of Christ, can have an attitude of gratitude in all circumstances. I meant to mention this at the beginning, and I forgot. Brian's always really good at this. Our main scripture is going to be in Luke, Luke 17. So if you want to turn there, if you go to the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 17. It's the story where Jesus heals the ten lepers. So I'll go ahead and start. It's verse 11 in chapter 17. Now, on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus traveled along the borders between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. So here's the story about these 10 lepers. And one of the things that's unique about this story as far as a healing by Jesus 
is that Jesus doesn't go over to them. He doesn't touch them. They stand at a distance, and he just says, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, it may seem a little strange at first, but when you understand about leprosy, it'll make more sense. See, leprosy, it is a skin disease, but it's not just a disease that gives you rashes and makes you, you know, a little unattractive. It basically attacks the nervous system. It gets to a point where people with leprosy don't feel pain. So when they injure themselves, when they have an infection, they don't know that they have it. So oftentimes, people with leprosy will end up losing some of their extremities because of things like this. It's a big deal in Jewish life. In fact, for those that have been reading through the Bible, you may remember when you were trudging through that book called Leviticus with all the laws and regulations, there were actually two whole chapters dealing with leprosy and skin disease, chapters 13 and 14. See, a leper was known or was, was, was uh, referred to as being ceremonially unclean. They had to live outside the community or the camp. And because they became outcasts, they basically resorted to a life of begging. Um, they had to stay at least six feet away from other people. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> when they were around anyone, they had to yell, unclean, or they would ring a bell around people so that people would know to steer clear of them. And if you remember from that book of Leviticus, it was the priests, only the priests that could inspect a leper or someone who had a skin condition to see if they were clean or if they were still unclean. If the leprosy had gotten on their clothes or even on the walls of their house, those things would have to be burned and destroyed. Having leprosy meant being an outsider, an outcast. But healing leprosy, that actually was believed by the Jews as one of the four messianic miracles. That was a sign of the Messiah. The Jews believed only the Messiah could heal someone with true leprosy. And part of this is because they often believed that leprosy was associated with sin. And only the Messiah could deal with forgiveness of sin. In Luke 7, just 10 chapters earlier, John the Baptist second guesses whether Jesus is the Messiah. He asked this question, are you the one or is there another one after you? And Jesus sends this message back. He says, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. He uses that as one of the affirmations to John that yes, he is the Messiah. So the first part of the story, other than the fact that Jesus actually doesn't go to them, doesn't touch them, he says, go see the priests, it's kind of a typical Jesus story, right? I mean, how many times have we read that Jesus goes into some town or village, someone is in need, and he performs a miracle? And more often than not, one of those miracles is a healing, right? It happens time and again in the Gospels. Now, some of you may have heard, if you've been to my dad's Sunday school class, or maybe even heard from me, that physical, our physical world oftentimes is a reflection of the spiritual. So I don't think 
it's an accident that the miracles that Jesus did more than anything else was healing physical ailments. Because that is a physical picture of just Jesus healing our spiritual ailments, right? So that's what he's been doing. But as we said, he doesn't go near them because they are considered unclean. Jesus is considered a rabbi. And he, being a good Jew, adhered to many of the Jewish customs of the day. But they were healed along the way. But what makes this miracle a little different is that not everyone reacts the same. It's just one person that comes back. And this person is a Samaritan, a half-breed. For those Harry Potter fans, this person is muggle-born. If you want to pull up this picture here, so this is kind of a map of Israel in the first century, in the time of Jesus. So while Judea, Samaria, and Galilee were all kind of considered the land of Israel, it was kind of broken into territories. Judea is down at the bottom, and in the upper right corner of Judea is, uh, well, actually kind of more in that direction is Jerusalem. You've got Jericho, Bethlehem, Emmaus, things like that. But then right above it in that blue area is Samaria. And then above that is Galilee. Galilee. So Jesus spent most of his time either up in Galilee or down in Jerusalem. So you can see he always had to, tr- to travel through Samaria. And Samaria was a place that had basically intermarried with pagan religions. So when the, it, when the, north, the, uh, the tribes split, if you remember those that are reading the Bible, you had the Judea in the south and then the ten tribes of Israel in the north. And they started to, to mix some of the pagan religions with Judaism. They stopped um, going to Jerusalem for the feasts and festivals, and they started worshiping at Mount Gerizim. They co-opted pagan religions, and they basically defiled the Jewish religion. They twisted Jewish doctrine. For those, when you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall of the city of Jerusalem, and it's the Samaritans that were against it. So the Jews disliked the Samaritans, but they hated them even more than Gentiles because they felt like the Jews knew better. It's a lot like Harry Potter with the muggles and those that just hated the muggles because they were mixed, mixed blood. Yet it is a Samaritan that comes back to thank Jesus. Now, we don't know who the other nine are, whether they're Jews or Samaritans, but this passage suggests that at least some of them are Jews. And if you remember, on the map, it says that he came to a town on the border between Galilee and Samaria. So he's right on a border town right there. So this man was a double outcast. He was not only a leper, but he was also a Samaritan. But he come, he's the one that comes back, praising God, giving thanks to Jesus. And Jesus' response, it was your faith that made you well. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think this is just a physical healing. I think this is a restoration of being made whole, both physically and spiritually. What made his response different? Now, the others did exactly what Jesus said, right? 
So Jesus is praising this one man for basically not doing what he told him to do. He didn't go and see the priests. He came back to see Jesus. Were the other ones being unfaithful? Were they being ungrateful? Well, we don't entirely know. But it is clear their response was not the same. So at this point, I want to take a step away from this story, and I want to ask a question. It's the same question that King David asked in Psalm 8.4. He asked this, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. What is man that God even thinks of us? Let me rephrase this a little different. Does God owe us anything? I mean, would he have the right to abandon us, to ignore us? Was God just in destroying the earth in the flood? See, it's easy to not feel gratitude for things if we feel we are owed something, right? If we utter those three little words, I deserve better. But does God really owe us anything? Would it not be fair and just to let us live our lives without any intervention from God? Would that be an unfair world or would that be fair? Any good or bad in this world is up to our doing and not his. Self-autonomy, right? It's the American way. I would answer that God really doesn't owe us anything. You know, the Hebrew word for thanks or thanksgiving that's used over two-thirds of the time in the Old Testament is a word, yada. It's actually spelled Y-D-H, but the vowels are always assumed in Hebrew. And it means acknowledging what is right about God in praise and thanksgiving. Acknowledging what is right about God. One of the things that I find interesting and I love about this definition, it's totally up to who God is. So the more we learn about God, the more we should praise and glorify him. But what is absent from this definition? Me, you, us, right? What's also interesting is this same root word that is used for thanks and thanksgiving in Hebrew is also the word for confession. It also means a right acknowledgement of self before God in confessing sin. It's basically this attitude or posture that God is God and you are not. So what does thankfulness and confession have in common? You are acknowledging that you are the lesser in both situations. I mean, think about it. When you thank someone for something that has been done for you or given to you, it's because you didn't deserve it. It was a gift, right? I mean, how many of you go to work and on payday you go and you thank your boss for giving you a check? 
you don't because you deserve that check, right? Maybe you, didn't, maybe you feel like you deserved a little bit more, but you worked for that paycheck. So you don't feel the need to go and thank them for it because you earned it. You deserve that check for your labor. Now let's think about confession. You confess a shortcoming, a sin. You're coming to someone who is in the right and confessing your failure or your wrong. Both, both words are a posture of lowering yourself and elevating the other. The more we see God as big, as good, as holy, and ourselves as not that, smaller, maybe broken, sinful, the more thankful we will be. Who is God that you are mindful of him? This is the posture that David had. He understood that he was the lesser and God was the greater. And it is only by the mercy and grace of God that he receives anything from God, whether it be forgiveness or the blessings in his life. That's the attitude that can make anyone thankful in all circumstances. So let's go back to the story of the 10 lepers. We talked about the Samaritan, but what about the other nine? Why didn't they return to Jesus? As I mentioned before, they did as they were supposed to, right? As Jesus commanded, they were on their way to see the priests so they could be declared clean. Well, I'm just projecting here. So this is the gospel according to Jeff. But could it be that as Jews, they were focused on being restored to their rightful place? See, they... they presumably were not Samaritans. They could have been, some of them, but it's presumed that some, if not all of them, were Jews. They had been ostracized from their community. They couldn't go and worship and be part of this worship in the temple or be part of the community. So they were going to show the priest that they were clean so they could be restored back to their place in society. Maybe they were focused on that rather than on the source of the mercy they were shown. Maybe they were too focused on the steps back to normal life that they didn't realize the ultimate high priest was Jesus himself, right? Have you ever needed mercy, but when you were given it, maybe you felt a little like you might have deserved it, at least some of what, at least some of what you received? An officer lets you off with the warning. And you realize, yeah, maybe you were bending the rules at that point, but it was just because you were in a real hurry that day and normally you drive the speed limit. So in a way, I've kind of been good most of the time, so I kind of deserved getting off that time. I mean, I was just kind of bending the rules and police officers are, are really supposed to be there to catch the people who really break the law, the law right? But what about us in the church? How often do we focus on going to the priest to be declared clean? To do the things that we need to do to be declared good moral people? I mean, 
God gives me grace, right? But I paid my tithe, so I kind of earn at least a little bit of it, right? I sang, I took communion this week, I showed up at church, that's more than a lot of people could say. So, yes, I'm a sinner, but maybe I'm not quite as much a sinner as the next person. Maybe we miss the source of all of it at times. But the Samaritan got it. You know, I, talk, I talked about the Hebrew word for thanksgiving. I want to look at the, the New Testament word for thanksgiving. It is Eucharisteo. And for those that may have come from a Catholic background, that may look familiar because it's where you get the word Eucharist, which they use for communion. And what do we do when we're during communion? It's a time where we oftentimes confess our sins and give thanks for the grace and forgiveness we have been given. Thanks and confession, right? The same as the Old Testament word. We see ourselves as lesser and God the greater. It's this posture that allows us to be thankful in all circumstances. It's the attitude that Job had in the beginning of his book when he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So how can we be better at having an attitude of gratitude? Well, I have four takeaways for you. The first one is this. Remember what God has done. The Christian life requires a relentless pursuit of God and his truth and a constant bringing to mind in remembrance of who God is and what he has done for us. That's what we do in communion, right? Every time we come forward, we're remembering what he had done, what he has done for us. We will always be thankful when we have a clear and accurate assessment of the character of our God and what God has done for us. Psalm 107.8 says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Psalm 75 verse 1 says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, to your for, give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that has, was given to me, given to you in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in his words during communion, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what God has done for you. I believe that's the first step. Second, believe in what God will do. Believe in his promises. Colossians 1.12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Things may be hard at times, but for the believer, the future is bright for those in Christ Jesus. You and I have an inheritance as sons and daughters in God's kingdom. Romans 8.28, most of us all know this passage and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you believe that God is working on your behalf? 
Do you believe that Jesus is coming again to make all things right? God is working things for good. It may not seem like it now, but remember what he has done for you in the past and believe what he will do for you in the future. Psalm 106, verse 1 starts out, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We know that pain and trials are temporary, but what lasts forever? His steadfast love, that's right. Let it encourage you to believe in God's promises for you in the future. Number three, praising God. The more we focus on God, as we talked about, the more thankful we become. Again, coming to God knowing we don't deserve anything. And I think one of the best ways for us to get into this posture is through worship and praise. And that's what the Samaritan did, remember? First thing he did, he turned around and he started praising God and then fell at the feet of Jesus. He was worshiping. Psalm 69.30 says this, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. You notice praise and thanksgiving and worship, it's all tied together. Hebrews 13.15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, acknowledge who God is. But what happens when we don't do this? There's some verses that talk about just the opposite. Let's look at Romans 1.21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 2 Timothy 3.2 says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. Lovers of self, pride, arrogance, it leads to ungratefulness. It's pretty simple, folks. Gratefulness is a natural outpouring of a life focused on God. And ungratefulness is a characteristic of a life focused on ourselves. So the fourth, final takeaway, practice an attitude of gratitude. Gratitude is a Christian discipline. It's not a suggestion. It's a command in Scripture. Thankfulness, like love, is not to be based on a feeling, on how you feel that day. Are you having a good day or a bad day? Think about it. You don't follow commands based on emotions, right? If you're in the army and the the sergeant tells you to go over there, you don't go, well, I just don't feel like it today. Whether you feel like it or not, if it's a command, you do it because it's an act of the will. It's not an act based on your emotions. It's a decision. Remember, we read in the beginning, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is not a feeling. This is not his suggestion. 
Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything you do, you should be doing while giving thanks to God. When I'm cleaning out my cat litter box at home, I should be thanking God while I'm doing it. The only way you can do that is by knowing that God doesn't owe you anything. And yet you have all that you have. Ephesians 5.17 starts out, says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Again, there's that word God's will for you. And then you jump to verse 19. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. There's the worship part. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those are my four takeaways. I'm not saying they're exhaustive, but I think they'll, they'll get us on the right path. Remember what God has done for you. Believe in what he will do for you. Worship him, praise him, and practice it. it is a, it's a discipline, an attitude of gratitude. So I opened with... A quote from Rich Mullins. I thought I'd go ahead and close with a few other quotes of his that kind of put that attitude in perspective again of God doesn't owe us anything, but yet he gives us everything. We were given the scriptures to humble us into realizing that God is right and the rest of us are just guessing. I think I would rather live on the verge of failing and let my security be in the all-sufficiency of the grace of God than to live in some pietistic illusion of moral excellence. Not that I don't want to be morally excellent, but my faith isn't in the idea that I'm more moral than anybody else. How often do we sometimes put our faith in that? My faith is in the idea that God and his love are greater than whatever sins any of us commit. And lastly, look at us all. We are all of us lost and in all of our different ways of pretending. We all fool ourselves into the very same hell. Look at the cross. We are all of us loved And one God meets us all at the point of our common need and brings to all of us, all who will let him, salvation. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for for your word. Thank you that it does show, show us that you are right and that we are at best guessing at times. Lord, thank you for your son. Lord, thank you for the stories in the Bible to show us that the people that you've called, the people that you've chosen, the people that you use, they're not perfect, that they make mistakes just like us. But Lord, thank thank you that you are a faithful and loving God, that you abound in mercy and grace for us that your love is everlasting, that you are working for our good, Lord. Lord, please 
Let your spirit bring to mind these things. Help us to remember all the blessings that we have. Lord, I ask that your spirit help us to believe, give us the faith to believe that in those hard times that you are working for our good, that you are a good and loving God. Lord, we praise you, we worship you. Thank you for being our God. Help us to be your people.